The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Brandon Peters show. Today we'll feature a discussion on the 1988 film Working Girl with my guest, a freelance writer who has contributed to Esquire, The Washington Post, NBC News, In Style, The Cut, in addition to being the creator and host of the adult spelling bee, Danielle Sepulverez. Hi, that's me. All of that is me. Welcome. Appreciate you coming on, especially I can't wait to talk about Working Girl with you. Got, yeah. There's a lot to talk about there. But let's first uh, take a moment, let the listeners get to know who you are. And how about we start with your writing? Um, you've made a nice little mark with your words about pop culture, movies, health, relationships, all sorts of things. Was writing for you like an early goal or did it sort of evolve out of something else from your life and dreams and whatnot? Uh, so it's funny because I started writing or almost thinking of myself as a writer all the way back in literally the first grade. That was, I think, when I had my first journal. But I sort of had those aspirations of one day I'll write a book and, you know, or one day I'll write things that other people will read. But I think in the, that was more like a fantasy. And I thought I'd have this kind of like corner office job and being executive and, and writing would almost be something I did on the side. The fact that I've been published in these dream outlets sometimes doesn't quite feel real. It's exciting, but that is almost what you just said did happen. So I, I did work an office job when I graduated college. First of all, been through way too many recessions. And this is why I'll never own a home. It's not avocado toast. <laughs> it's <recession. laughs> Yes. No. <laughs> so when I graduated college, it was really hard to find a job for everyone in my class. And I ended up working as a headhunter in finance, which is the last thing mm. I would have thought. I, I majored in mass communication and English with like a focus in TV production. My internships were in PR and uh, at a radio station. So I, I thought I was going to be in, in a media world or entertainment in some way then yeah, the jobs that were available, the very, very few paid something like, I don't know, you know, $16,000 a year. Yeah. Um, and they tried to coerce you being like, oh, but you know, you get to meet bands like at a radio station or you get to go to concerts. And I'm like, that doesn't pay bills. And I have college loans. And, and so I ended up interviewing for any kind of job I could find on. Because back then, I think it was just monster and career builder were your only options. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> Of job and they board. suck. <laughs> yeah, it was terrible. And they were both they they both had like the same jobs on both of mm-hmm. them. And so you you would get these memberships or or pay for a monthly something and then yeah, it was awful. And so I, I ended up interviewing for this job and I was sort of very discouraged at that point. But the the person that interviewed me talked about headhunting as more of a relationship management kind of job. So that seemed interesting, where it was more about the dealing with people than it was about finance, because 
in my first interview, I was like, I need to be honest with you. I'm terrible at math. So if that's <laughs> a requirement for this job, I'm not your person. Yeah. So I, I had the job. And at the time too, when you're right out of college, you, you sort of tell yourself, well, if this isn't the right fit, I'll just do this for a year and mm-hmm. then move on. And I ended up really liking it and, and doing really well at it and getting my own clients and getting a lot of different candidates because then the market started to pick up and there were jobs and headhunters in general. And I honestly have been out of the game so long, but, you know, there's this sort of sense that they're poachers and they you know, steal people from one company and put them into another. And, and mm-hmm. that's definitely true. And that definitely happens. But a lot of what I was doing, I was getting people who were unemployed and jobs so i was getting you know thank you cards around the holidays from someone who's like oh i don't need to take out a second mortgage to send my kids to college because you're right and so that was a really nice thing Mm -hmm. but then also because it was finance i dealt with a lot of pricks who Mm. (laughs) you know would use me for my connection to the company that was hiring and then try to completely cut me out of it and go to them directly and I wouldn't get a commission. So yeah, so it was, but I stayed for five years. I left because there was a guy there who, I I don't even know what to call him. I mean, he definitely harassed me. He harassed a lot of people who worked there. And the thing was, I was very young and I was almost under the impression for most of it that it was just, you're not going to like all your coworkers and you just sort of have to put up with certain things in the mm-hmm. office place and we didn't have a real HR department. And it wasn't until he pulled like a really, really over the top despicable stunt that I was like, I can't work here anymore. I can't, you know, be in this kind of environment. Mm-hmm. And so I, I interviewed, started interviewing for other jobs and I found a job in uh, advertising sales at a publishing company. I really liked that job initially, but a few months in, and because now I, at that point I had like, you know, five or six years of corporate experience under my belt, especially yeah. in hiring and firing. So when I got there a few months in, I was like, this company is not well run. I'm like, they, <laughs> they, they are spending way too much money and this is going to you know, backfire. And sure enough, a few months later, all of a sudden they started laying people off. Oh. And I was worried because you know, the consensus is often last one in, first one out. And so I was holding my breath and they were instead letting go people who had been there like 17 years because I'm sure their salaries were really high. Right, yeah. Um, so I, I somehow survived. And uh, I think the main reason was I had covered my salary numerous times over with the revenue I had brought in. So when we had our, our year end reviews, that was the one thing I had gone in to my meeting with and been like, hi, here's a spreadsheet of all the money that I've made for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what saved my job initially. And then they had more layoffs and then, and I survived that. I basically, I survived the first two rounds and then I got the the third one. I got the annual was, purge. Yeah. yeah, it was, it, it was a terrible way that they handled things there. The day that they laid me off and a whole bunch of other people, it was a snowstorm in New Jersey. It was a state emergency. Oh, geez. And we had been at an event, like a, a company sponsored event the night before and our clients were there. So we'd had to stay out pretty late. And then they had sent out an email saying it would be best if we could like find a way to get into the office the next day, even if it took us a while. So I had to wait for the roads to clear because it was really bad outside. And then I had to drive, you know, about two miles an hour to get there just for them to tell me that they were laying me off. 
That's <laughs> it was, and the thing was, at least I didn't live that far. I felt much worse. They, there was one woman who's like the mother of small children, so she had to get childcare for her kids because her kids didn't have school that day. Right, and she had to drive like over an hour and a half away just for them to be like, okay, so we're laying you off. Like, can you imagine? Like, you couldn't do that over the phone. Like, no, how? like you could be like. I'm sorry we have to do it this way, but for your safety and so you don't have to go out of your way. Just, oh my God. And you're going to be mad at us anyway, so here you go. And the funny thing was uh, a lot of my clients were at the event the night before and they were talking to one of my bosses and being like, oh yeah, we you know we can't wait to like re-up our advertising schedules with you guys in the new year and yada, yada, yada and all this stuff. And one of my clients had called me that night, but I didn't get the message till later the next day Mm -hmm. where he was like, your boss was acting weird when I was talking about you. So like they knew that they were the next day and he had just had like a sixth sense about it. And he, I guess was like trying to warn me or just sort of like give me a heads up. Um, And so then when someone took over my accounts uh, and called him and also several other people, they, they pulled out of their advertising with the company. Hey, (laughs) out of loyalty to me, which was actually really nice. Victory. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I told him, I was like, you know, you should still do it if it's best for you guys. But I do appreciate that. <laughs> they could, did they find a position for you if they liked you so much? They can. That's like, oh, they did not. <laughs> but some of them hired, I think that was like my first time being hired to freelance, right? Like a few of them hired me to write some st- uh, web content for the websites. Mm-hmm. And then someone made me like some free business cards to say I was like a freelance writer. Uh, So I actually did get some good things out of that job. But there's a guy at that job. It's funny because we're going to talk about working girl, but... Mm -hmm. There like is, you're, you're building it up very well. Right. There, there <laughs> who is so disgusting at that second job. I mean, there was a, a really bad guy at, at the first job and I would talk about it, but it's just such a long, complicated, involved story mm-hmm. that it would, I feel like it would overshadow like the fun of what, how, what we're supposed to be having tonight. So I'll, I'll just tell you about <laughs> the, uh, the second guy. We can maybe have the Brandon Peters show nights episode. That's a bonus. It comes <laughs> yeah. out. You just lay it all out there. Yes, exactly. Oh, he was an awful person. But at the second place, there was a guy that they hired. And you've seen Office Space, I assume. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so you remember how they they had the bobs come in and, and they're like, oh, we're interviewing for our job. Yeah, yes, yeah. So they hired this guy and they called oh. him a consultant. And it was literally like by the book, Office Space. And I kept telling <laughs> everyone... Uh, who I was friendly with in the company, I was like, please be very careful when you talk to him because he is reporting directly back to our bosses. You know, don't think that he's, because he he's very affable in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, okay, like can't trust this guy. I just knew that he was there to, because they kept using words like, oh, he's here to streamline the company and this. And I'm like, oh, these are all buzzwords. These all these all mean layoffs. Streamline. Like, yeah, I had a job where if, if you were training another facility about a new process in a different city, I'm like, oh, we're closing. <laughs> or, that, or that place is closing. Like, cause- totally. That's absolutely. So that was going on. And when I went in for my meeting, I, I gave him nothing. I just basically went in almost on the offensive and was just like, oh, like, this is what I do in, in my position on a daily basis. Because he, he positioned it as, oh, uh, I'm just trying to familiarize myself with what everyone does in, in each department. And I knew it was mm-hmm. so he could go back and be like, oh, you don't need this person or this person is superfluous. You know, this this position is too close to this one and it overlaps and you can just combine it and fire this person. And I mean, 
I credit my headhunting background to knowing <laughs> that that's what, it, and also yeah. office space. I credit office space, office space. For, for teaching me these things. And so sure enough, like after he showed up, that was happening. And then he got sort of more and more arrogant as time went on and more and more mm. obnoxious. And I was supposed to have a meeting with him. And I got there as I sat down to start talking. He was like, oh, um, you know what? I haven't had breakfast yet. Could you like run downstairs and uh, get me a bagel? And <laughs> he's like, and, you know, toast it. And I was like, what? and the thing is, I'm in general, a nice kind of accommodating person. So my mm-hmm. initial reaction was to, like get up out of my seat. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I'm a senior executive at this company. I, right. you know, I run like 45 different accounts and I'm not going to go toast this guy's bagel when we have interns in the office and assistants in the office. Like this is, this is him like trying to exert power over me. So I turned around and I sat down and I was like, no, I'm no, I can't. I was like, I have meetings to get to later and I'm just barely squeezing this in. So I was like, call one of the interns and he was like, they're doing other stuff for me. Like you really can't do it. And I was like, no, I I can't get your own damn bagel. Like, And also at this time, it's like 10 o'clock in the morning, get here earlier and get your own damn bagel. (laughs) Like what's your, (laughs) what are you doing? Yeah, I still call him uh, George. That wasn't his name, but I called him George because he had a uh, framed print of Sunday in the Park with George, and he talked about it all the time. Oh, my. And so, and, like, when I used to talk about how much I couldn't stand him, my code word for him was George. George. <laughs> like, George. But, yeah, so he, he did that, and then he commented. I, I can't remember now. I think it was that same day. Right around that time, my grandmother had passed away, mm-hmm. and she had left me her wedding slash engagement ring. It was, like, three bands. Um, okay, yeah. At the time, I, I wore it because it just, you know, made me feel close to her. I was wearing it a lot at that time. And he asked me about it and said, well, he said, I don't think you should wear an engagement ring if you're not engaged. And I like didn't realize what he was saying at first. And, and then because also I didn't think of it as an engagement ring. I just thought of it as my grandmother's ring. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I, I don't not following. And then I was like, oh, oh, my ring. And I'm like, I'm it's my ring. I'll, I'll wear it if I feel like wearing it. And he's like, yeah, but you know, are you engaged? And I was like, why is that your business? And he goes, I'm just saying, you know, if you're wearing it, you know, clients might think one thing and, but if you're not wearing it, then like it doesn't, you know, doesn't give the wrong idea. And I'm like, clients, I'm doing business with them. Yeah. Trying to date them. And also that if you're suggesting that they'd only do business with me if they think I'm available, then we have a much bigger problem. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, tying into to working girl. You, you know, did I have a a million times as a kid. And and I think I didn't fully believe that characters would be like the Kevin Spacey guy in the limo mm-hmm. and um and Oliver Platt and the other guy, like her two bosses in the beginning, like trying pretending that they want to further her career, but they're setting her up with some guy who's like trying to assault her basically in the back of the limo. I, I think I didn't fully get that it, it could be like that and until I physically experienced it. I you did have the power in that one situation to make him feel like garbage. You should have said, oh, oh, you mean my recently deceased grandmother's ring that I'm wearing. That This one? That, yeah. And the yeah. thing is, I did, I almost did that. And then I stopped myself because I'm like, he doesn't deserve an explanation. Like my explanation is it's my ring and I'm going to fucking wear it. Like, Fair night. Then go with that one. Even better. No, but you're right. Like that, that <laughs> could have been, I was just, so, and it was also, 
I always felt so unprepared when he did stuff like that because majority of people I've worked with are good people and you mm-hmm. know treat you with respect and you know don't say these undercutting type things and and then he would be gross too like one time he was talking about the way people dress in the office and I was in a very conservative skirt suit at the time mm-hmm. and uh, he said something about the way people dress and I was looking down at myself like what could I'm like this is like a slate gray completely buttoned up like skirt to like below the knee like what could be his issue with what I'm wearing yeah so I said is there some kind of dress code that I'm not aware of and he goes oh no he goes you look fantastic but everyone else around here you should you should keep dressing the way you do to set a good example and I was like George not his name but for this purpose George (laughs) if you want to institute a dress code just institute a dress code I'm like you you can't foster like the the clothing environment you want by just assuming yeah. people are going to look at what I'm wearing and then emulate it. Yeah, that mm. George. He George sucks. does not. He does not get high marks. Yes, he did call me a few months later after they laid me off and offer me my job back, but like with all these conditions to it, he was like, "Oh well, we'd like to have you come back on a, a trial basis. It would be a, you know no base salary. You'd be on a draw." And I was like, "We have a couple tasks we need done, and you were pretty good at them." So. <laughs> Finish like the job. You'll have to pick up my dry cleaning. <laughs> like, <laughs> Bagels only. This oh is revenge. God. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah so a, a big joke that I've told forever is, is that because I've worked as a stand-in at a body double on mm-hmm. TV, which we'll get to. But I've, I've been completely naked on a television set and body doubling. And mm-hmm. I've actually been treated with more respect in that case than I was in an office environment fully clothed. <laughs> so I, I tell you, I've done two, I worked on two movies with nudity in them when I was in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and it's not as, whoa, as, yeah. as, as, as you'd think, like it feels dirty a lot. Maybe there's, maybe it was just me on the set, but I got the vibe from everybody else. That it's like this really calculated, Make sure everybody's comfortable, controlled thing. And I was working on some cheap shit too. And I had one, yeah, where I was a sound, I was a sound guy, and I was accidentally in the wrong corner, and I wasn't supposed to be in the room with the topless scene. But she came over. She she was like, "You're one of the nicest people on the set," so I didn't care. I wasn't going to say anything. And I think someone on like the fourth take noticed and yeah. she was like, he stays. That's fine. Because yeah. I would, I'd throw a football with her like between takes or whatever. She was pretty cool. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think uh, the first one I ever did, they told me before and they're like, it's certainly going to be uh, the camera operator, the dolly grip because it, mm-hmm. it was a kind of a tracking shot and the director. That's it. There's okay. Three people in the room. And I mm-hmm. was like, okay. And it was all people I'd been working with for years. Also, I was going to be facing away from camera too. I'm like, I don't even have to look at them. So it's fine. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> but yeah, it was very respectful. Like they, you know, they do the whole closed set thing where even people don't even sit by the monitors. This is like a very long winded way for me to talk about how I got into freelance writing, but yeah, <laughs> basically being unceremoniously dumped out of, you know, office life. Mm-hmm. Like I had to make money and I had to, you know, figure out things. And I've always been good at writing and I just sort of, had to found my niche and initially writing about relationships became a big thing because I had a lot of funny stories. Mm-hmm. And at first, you know, to me, they were just stories I would tell at cocktail parties or to friends and then would find they were relatable to a lot of people. So 
when I think the first time I told one ridiculous story, I told a story about my one and only one night stand, which wasn't even truly one night stand because I knew him, but I bought him sheets afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) And so, so I wrote this ridiculous essay, which thank God the website is defunct because I don't think this should live anywhere online. Mm -hmm. But the title of it was, I'm not good at casual sex, so I bought sheets for my one night stand. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. But it's, you know, it is a very funny story. And uh, if you're lucky, I will tell it again one of these days. But (laughs) that was one of my first published pieces. And then that sort of spun into different takes on relationships and relationships I had because the very first relationship I was ever in very serious one I should say Mm -hmm. in my early 20s was emotionally abusive but I did not know that uh, until a while later when I was explaining things to therapists and she kind of identified it for me and I was like oh my god Mm. I really just thought he was a massive asshole and uh and and you know I was naive and, and learning and and then when you have healthy relationships after that you you sort of can compare and contrast and say oh my god that that wasn't normal you know it's Mm -hmm. it's not and it's it seems so obvious and like it should have been right in front of you and uh, again back to working girl her relationship with alec baldwin he yeah he he wasn't emotionally abusive but he was indifferent to what she wanted and didn't listen to what she wanted and uh he thought his needs trumped hers always and i mean he just the fact that he couldn't possibly understand that she wouldn't, you know, throw everything aside, forgive him and say yes to his marriage proposal at their friend's like wedding shower or bridal shower. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, that's rude. You don't steal someone else's thunder (laughs) at another, another person's party. And also she just caught you in bed like two nights ago with Doreen DiMucci. So, I mean, come on, you know, and then you see how supportive Harrison Ford is Mm -hmm. towards her. And he kind of, likes her her quirkiness and and rolls with it and even though he doesn't quite understand it at first and right because she doesn't you know she's not like all the business people that he's used to dealing with and suddenly he's not like bored with his life anymore and he's like who is this person and why is she exciting and fun and interesting and instead chooses to elevate her instead of alec baldwin is always changing the subject or you know right. acting like her, you know, the fact that she was going to those classes at night and then he was using that time to sleep with another woman and thinking like that this is an okay arrangement. Right. Right. No. And honestly, like her whole her whole community or environment pre office stuff was kind of like that. Is there like with your with your writing or um, is there a particular avenue you prefer or you feel more comfortable in with? I feel like I evolved a little bit past just my own dating life. Cause also after a while you, you kind of don't want to write about yourself anymore. <laughs> it feels like maybe you've, you've mined to like too much information, mm-hmm. but too much information out there. And there's also like only so much you can say, I think at certain stages in your life, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's one thing if you are single and then married and then, or then divorced or like going through these different stages. And then I think you have, kind of evolving viewpoints. And whereas if you're not going through those stages, you definitely can have evolving viewpoints. But I I think also maybe only to a point. Mm -hmm. um, Because you're still like, for me, like I'm not cohabitating with another person. So I don't have stories to tell about that. 
I have like past stories to tell about that. And then also there's like a certain amount of things that I want, like just for me. And that's something in the beginning, I was just like, so excited to have a byline and so uh, interested in like having published words for people to read out there that right. I didn't stop to think about what I needed to keep for myself. And I, you know, I don't regret anything that I put out there, but I'm glad that I was a little bit older when it happened too, because I think that if I had been really young when I first got published, I probably w- would have stuff that I would regret now. Gotcha. Was it hard? Like, cause you start in one area, but you, you've got your hand in like different places. Was it hard to break out and jump into one? Cause people like to corner somebody as, Oh, that's this writer and that's just right. But you are able to talk about health and movies and stuff like it's all around. So like, yes. was it a challenge to be able to be well-rounded with it or to get people it to believe that you were? Because I think we can be like our own worst enemies with that and uh, mm-hmm. be like, well, I am only this writer maybe I'm not good enough to write about areas that I'm not super familiar with, but also you can learn and you can educate yourself. And granted there's, you know, certain topics that you can never quite become well-versed enough in, but there's plenty Mm -hmm. that you can. And, you know, pop culture entertainment was always something that I had an affinity for, but then working behind the scenes gave me sort of an advantage and an interesting viewpoint to a lot of different things that, not a lot of people can straddle the line the way I have and uh, look at things as a viewer, but then also Mm -hmm. as part of it. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah. So that's, that's worked. I mean, not always, but sometimes it's, it's an interesting perspective that editors like for, for some um, articles. And so that's, so that was sort of what helped me get sort of delve into pop culture entertainment, which then led to, some places letting me just, you know, review things or comment on things and like give my thoughts without necessarily talking about my own experience, which I think was always the point too, that, you know, doesn't always have to center me. Gotcha. <laughs> and, you know, and it is a, a challenge, you know, like uh, the first time I wrote for popular science, I was so nervous or Pacific standard because it was mm-hmm. a lot of research and interviews and, you know, kind of on topics that were interesting to me, but, you know, not so much second nature, but it like feels good sometimes to go outside the box and challenge yourself and, and try to do a good job. Speak a good job. You are a, you have a published book. You have. I do have a book. It was self-published back in 2011. Mm-hmm. The thing is I probably should have waited a little bit because I think I could have found the right lit agent literally just a couple of years later. I think it was just a little too early with it. Mm-hmm the agent that I tried to work with, she had said that she'd uh, sent it out to 10 different places. And then I found out later that she didn't actually tell the truth about that. And I sort of became disillusioned with the publishing industry in general. And I just decided I also at the time I was, you know, I was in my mid twenties and uh, actually that when it came out in 2011, I was not my mid twenties. When I wrote it, I was in my mid twenties. Okay desperate to get it down on paper because I thought it was so important and like needed to be told like in that instant. So in 2011, I just had sort of gotten fed up with how publishing works. And I, and, you know, I didn't have a platform and Twitter wasn't quite what it is now. And I just was like, I, I need this out there for peace of mind. And so I, I put it out there and there probably uh, would have been some benefit to waiting, but also 
I'm glad I got it out there too, because I have had a lot of feedback from people who say that it's the first kind of thing about that topic. Cause I write about getting diagnosed with HPV when I was mm-hmm. 23 and what ensued for two years, uh, where I was, you know, afraid of uh, developing a cervical cancer because I had these precancerous cells and it was something that wasn't on the internet. And all, all I could ever find was like WebMD, which was like, this may not be a big deal or it may kill you. <laughs> oh, yeah. And yeah. So, and so at, I'm 23 years old and I'm like, I would, I, is there anything in the middle? Like, yeah. Is, uh, I'm supposed to take this seriously, but, um, but yeah. So <laughs> that was that book. And I cried a lot writing it. And a lot of people who have read it told me it made them cry. So I'm like, oh, so something osmosis something went through there right well it goes hand in hand with your your uh hpv advocacy with uh, cervical cancer and stuff which yeah you have a lot of videos and done a lot with that that's that's what's been like a nice byproduct of of having gotten it out there is that i you know did link up with some great organizations like survivor spelled c-e-r-v-i-v-o-r um run by tamika felder and she is a cervical cancer survivor and she wanted to have this group for women who didn't have, couldn't find information online, didn't have people to talk to. And so I guess I've almost sort of thought of myself as like a fringe member because I'm grateful that I didn't, it didn't actually progress into something that mm-hmm. serious, but you know, there is a spectrum and that kind of information should be available for everyone. Like the experience that she had and a lot of the other women in that group. And then also mm-hmm. my experience, because it's, it's all experiences that aren't talked about enough and are heavily stigmatized. And if you can talk to someone in her group who, you know, went through chemo or had the full hysterectomy or partial hysterectomy or whatever they had to do to deal with it, it's, it's really helpful to, to connect with someone who's been through what you've been through. And then same goes for me on my end of it, where it wasn't as simple as, Oh, you had it. Oh, your body cleared it in a few months, which is what happens to a lot of people. But Mm -hmm. Plenty of people also go through what I went through, which was two rounds of cryosurgery where they freeze your cervix and which thankfully I don't think they do that anymore, but oh, at the time they did. And then I finally, I had to have a, what they call a leap procedure where they remove a piece of your cervix where the precancerous cells are. Oh, okay. um, and then they have to test you to make sure that it comes up as negative, which did for me. But then I had to keep you know, keep up with visits like every six months for a couple of years until finally after a few years of all clear, they were like, okay, you can go back to annual visits, but it's, it it really weighs on you. And it's, it's very traumatic. And it was traumatic in a way that I didn't allow myself to sort of accept until much, much later on, because in my head, I just kept doing like a forward thinking, like I have to think like the next doctor's appointment, then the next doctor's appointment until I don't have to do the doctor's appointments anymore. Yeah. So I wasn't really allowing myself to feel how I felt <laughs> if yeah. that makes sense, until later. It really hit me all at once in a very heavy way. It was a lot to contend with. And one of the reasons why I wrote what I did was because I thought if I could sort of advise anyone, it would be that you don't have to wait to feel your feelings. It's okay to feel what you're feeling and it's okay mm-hmm. to talk about it. It's okay to reach out to your friends. It's okay to find people that have experienced this too. And it's okay to feel embarrassed by it. Like you don't have to feel embarrassed by it, but yeah. 
it's it's a normal feeling because of the way people talk about it or the way you know any movie or tv show that mentions it often does it in a very kind of stigmatizing way on a more i guess upbeat topic uh the adult spelling bee yes something that's fair that's that segue right there right just right well, we are going to do a uh, a sex education themed one. Oh, okay. Yeah, so good segue. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You saved me. You saved me. But yeah, tell everyone about that. It's something I'm I I like. I've checked it out a bit. It's pretty fun. But thank you. Tell people about it. It it started a couple years ago. I think I watched the the National Spelling Bee on TV mm-hmm. and um was like, hey why don't people have like a drunk spelling bee the way they had drunk Ted talks and drunk trivia and whatever. And Mm -hmm. and I probably was having a cocktail while I said this. And then all these people were responding saying, I would totally do a drunk spelling bee. And then the more and more I was thinking about it, because I have a lot of friends who, who don't drink, but thought a spelling bee would be fun. And I thought, what if it's not a drunk spelling bee? What if it's just a spelling bee? Mm -hmm. And although we did, you know, when we did live versions of it on stage, like people did drink on stage and so it was fun. All right. But it wasn't a prerequisite of like, oh, do a shot if you get a word wrong, which was like kind of my initial <laughs> plan. <laughs> but, you know, there's only so long that that could last. And right. I don't want to send anyone home with alcohol poisoning. So it sort of morphed into this really great thing that we're doing at UCB in New York and L.A. And comedians are playing writers, actors, improv people and authors, you know, kind of uh, all different. Some a lot of people just in entertainment who either have stage presence or are funny mm-hmm. or are very adamant that they're very good spellers. So it's it's been a fun array of people. We've done a lot of different themes. And uh, once COVID shut the world down, I took it virtual and been live streaming it on Facebook every Sunday. We do like three or four weeks in a row and then I take a week or two off depending. It's like a little bit of a loose schedule. And the first one of 2021 will be this Sunday, and the theme is. Uh, It'll be the past World. Sunday. Yes. <laughs> when this airs, it'll be. Oh right, yes. A couple of weeks ago, <laughs> maybe. But you so, can still watch it. You can still watch it because it'll be on YouTube at that point, and yeah, so it should be a lot of fun. And then we're gonna do a Veep themed one the week of inauguration, and then probably that probably the week after that will be the high school sex ed one where we can all tell horror stories about. Uh, sex ed classes that we endured in mm. high school or lack thereof I should say because uh, I feel like mine was smushed in with driver's ed where like they we had like a week of stuff mm. and then it was like okay on to driving and we were all like uh, okay I, I, I was in a very conservative midwest area from my school and it was like an afternoon where the boys went to this one room and the girls okay. went to another and then from then on it was like brushed upon in health class like one day and told like bad they just so. they didn't know how to teach it i don't know if they even do and i know it's a thing that it's it's not a required part of a curriculum so mm-hmm. only uh, only i'm trying to think I, I feel like only 17 states even have it as a requirement for the curriculum but also even out of those i, think, I believe it's 17 i have to double check but mm-hmm. um even out of that number there's no kind of a standard for the type so they mm. can say that they have sex education but it could still just be like you said an afternoon of some couple kind of- videos what do you guys think mm-hmm. they're in the other room learning stuff that you probably should be learning but we're not going to teach you because you you're yeah. a guy that's what my teacher sounded like exactly like that 
I honestly, my my biggest memories of it is the miracle of birth video, which was disgusting. We went to McMillan Health Center. We had a health center. We we saw that one there. Oh, in a theater audience. No. Oh, <laughs> and we had Tam, the robot, that was like this. This is my pelvis, and then it would light up, and like she'd talk like this, and. I think actually, I think you should play on that spelling bee and talk about this. Oh god! Because yeah, I think that's an amazing story. I want to hear more about that robot. It's oh yeah, yeah. Just hoping to do better with my children on it than that I was brought. Well, and that's yeah. It's it's a big thing. Like there's just like a lot of shame. Hmm. And. So, but yeah, the spelling bee has been really fun. Like we did a lot of random stuff in the live ones where we would give out books to the audience because sometimes the author of that book was there as a guest judge. Or oh, okay. Whatever. Um, and so I wanted to sort of do something like that once we went virtual, but you know, you can't do that because you can't see the audience and until I can get a more sophisticated setup than just out of my bedroom for now. What we do is everyone picks an organization that they want to play for, and then I make a donation to the winners. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. And so we've had some sponsorships, though, in the past year where Wired Dads podcast and Knack Factory, they uh, sponsored, I think it was like four or five episodes, so that I was able to donate to everyone's organization, but I just did it in varying amounts. Like first place got the most Oh, okay. All the money, and then second place got a little bit less. Third place got a little bit less. But it was nice to be able to give something to all of them. Yeah. You know, I get messages from people sometimes who watch the show and say, "Oh, what was the name of the organization that such and such played for?" Because it sounded really cool. Because everyone talks about it in the beginning. Because they usually mm-hmm. don't just rattle off the name of an organization. They'll be like, "Oh, I'm playing for this because like it's from my hometown, or because they helped me with this, or." Uh, at this time of year, they could really use some extra money, you know, so there's always a little bit of a, a personal attachment to the places that they're playing for. And that clearly seems to reach people because even for me, sometimes in the beginning, because, you know, I'm just I'm a freelance writer who's struggling and trying to get more of a, a full time stable job. Right. Uh, so there's only so much that I can donate. But sometimes someone would talk about a organization and they didn't win the B that night. But the next day or two, I would still like throw some money at the organization they talked about. So I'm like, gotcha. oh, I'm not familiar with that one. But you know, whatever, I'll send them 20 oh, bucks. Because, poke them and say hello. Yeah. Because now I know and, and a great thing about it has been getting to know about so many local smaller organizations because everyone knows about the big ones, you know, Mm -hmm. not that there's anything wrong with sending money to Planned Parenthood or Red Cross and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of these smaller places that, that people kind of are opening my eyes to, and also everyone watching the V that's kind of a really cool byproduct of the whole thing, which I'm happy about when I was tallying it all up at the end of December, I realized we, I think we, we donated to like over, 65 places uh oh wow over the course of the year so maybe even like 170 i'm now forgetting the number but it was like a, a lot of different places and it you know it was just sort of a nice thing to realize that wow we had a lot of fun you know once a week we you know we're shooting the shit and spelling mm-hmm. words and and talking about various things but also now i get incessant emails from everyone but because <laughs> i'm on every mailing list in the world it happens um, you know, it's worth it <laughs> there you go so yeah, that's all. Yeah, people check it out. It's uh on YouTube, Adult Spelling Bee. Um, follow it, subscribe, get all the 
Yeah, we stream live on the face the Adult Spelling Bee Facebook page every Sunday, and then it's archived on the Adult Spelling Bee YouTube page. But we also have some sizzle reels on there if you just want a quick look at what it's like. There's a few overall compilations that's like you know two minutes long, and a couple of specific ones are like one minute long, and so just to give you a sense of how fun and silly they are. All the hijinks, yes. but with a purpose. Right. Uh, lastly, we, we touched upon the, the stand-in body double that you said you've been doing for over 10 years, yeah. television films. Do you have any notable appearances that... Yeah. Most people know that I was uh, on The Good Wife for mm-hmm. many, many years. And so I was often Juliana Margulies's hands. <laughs> so uh, we did uh, insert shots a lot. Oh, okay. Um, and so whenever they would do like a tighter shot of like uh, holding a, pouring a wine, uh, wine into a wine glass or holding mm-hmm. a folder or like sliding a sheaf of paper across the table, like that kind of stuff. I did a lot of that for her. And it was funny because she was doing an interview once where the interviewer commented on how long and graceful her fingers were or something <laughs> that they noticed in an episode. And she was like, oh, that's not me. That's my stand-in. <laughs> um, so that was, that was kind of cool. Oh, um, but yeah, so for her, it was mostly hand stuff. And my friend Jill Flint was a recurring guest star on the show. And I was, oh. uh, that's the naked thing I was saying about. I was her okay. butt. Oh, nice. A very, very tri- Joey Tribbiani friends episode. Yes. I was a butt double. So that was really fun because uh, when the episode aired and it was CBS, so you couldn't really mm-hmm. see anything. It was just, you know, they filmed as, as close as they could. Right it aired and somebody tweeted at Jill and was just like, Hey, nice body or something. And she's like, it's not mine. And she tagged me. She was like, <laughs> <laughs> and you've also, I noticed you, you want to die in a lot more movies. Is that a thing? I have died. I died on the good wife. And so on the good wife, they watched the characters on the good wife, watched a show. Oh, they didn't cut off her hands in an episode. <laughs> no. Okay. It was, I was pl- actually playing a character. Oh, and um, and so they they watched a show, a, a, fic, a fictitious show called Darkness at Noon, which mm-hmm. sort of mocked cable dramas because cable dramas were always taking all the awards at award shows. Oh, okay, wife deserved some, so it was just sort of this little tongue in cheek thing. Like all the characters were obsessed with this very dramatic, overwrought, soapy thing called Darkness at Noon, and in one of the like last episodes of. I guess, yeah, I think it was the final season. They're they're watching it, and the main guy who's like always in darkness at noon, he's like he gets shot. Like I shoot him, and oh. he shoots him at the same time, and then he oh. spends like the rest of that episode like crawling and like dying in the desert. Mm. And it's you know very true detective. Gotcha. Um, but you know I die right away. Uh, so yeah, so I died on that. Um, I died on the show Dietland, uh, which was on AMC for one season. Mm. I played uh, Stella Cross, who is a porn star slash entrepreneur. Oh. So in the book, Dietland, she gets shot, but they don't show it in the TV show. They just show her corpse. Oh, Um, okay. And so we were, we shot this in this cemetery and I'm like laid out on this funeral pyre type thing. And it's freezing cold outside. We shot it in January and I'm in this see-through white nightgown thing and Mm -hmm. cold slab and it was so cold and the thing was we shot uh, a bunch of angles with my eyes closed Mm -hmm. just because as most actors will tell you about dying on screen it's much easier to be dead with your eyes closed 
And then at one point I had my eyes open while we were like rehearsing something. And uh, (laughs) I don't know if it was the director or the assistant director was just like, oh, should we try this with your eyes open? <laughs> and so then we were like, we were shooting it with my eyes open. They were like, "Yeah, this looks better." And then our uh, what our showrunner was just like, "It's really weird, but you look really good, Dad. Like you're really good at playing Dad." <laughs> <laughs> and then one of the camera operators too was like, "It's eerie how good like you look, Dad. Like how how believable you are." There was another. She's thing. the best corpse. Right, the and best. then. Uh, it was another thing in, in Dietland. I actually was just uh, rehearsing for one of the actors who gets shot like a bunch of times in the chest. Like she gets like mm-hmm. shot a bunch of times and falls down. And so I was doing the rehearsals. So I had to, you know, cause they were setting everything up. So to, to time everything out correctly, our assistant director would yell shots, which is like the bang, 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 bang. Right. And so I had to be like, like you know like, <laughs> a million times and then just like you know fall down like kind of naturally and there was a mat you know, to fall on and so i did it a couple times and again our showrunner was like how do you know how to die so well <laughs> i'm like i don't know i'm like this is i'm gonna put this on my resume <laughs> there you go dies well <laughs> like what is it you put uh, on your back of your head? Is it like skill set or something? It's like, I can, I know how to play basketball or <laughs> dying. I know how to die. I, I feel like uh, I should actually have a memoir called As I Lay Dying. Oh, there you go. On camera. <laughs> on camera. There you go. I, I only died one time in a movie and it was off. It was like a bucket list checkoff because I wanted to die in a slasher movie. Yeah. And I got, I got killed in a slasher movie and I had to do like, five takes of falling onto gravel was there blood no no blood i was a i was a party person during a massive attack and hey i'm gonna run by behind the slasher guy that's and he goes behind like it was a cool move but i was a dumbass for like running toward but i got to die honestly i can see it's me and i'm like all right i died in a slasher movie a slasher movie you gotta be a little bit dumber than you would normally oh yeah yes of course gotta add that but maybe we're learning maybe people are dumber than <laughs> that's think. true there isn't any room at the top for local girls like us i'm not giving up in the land of opportunity they're not gonna give you no shot test they're gonna shoot you where dreams are won and lost spray me down Sorry. Well, I can't very well walk around my own party clinging. Someone's about to get what she deserves. I know I'm asking an awful lot, Tess, but I I don't know what else to do. I need you to take over. Do me a favor, be me. Be my secretary. You do, sir? Thank you, Cynthia. Hold all calls, Miss McGill? Yes, Cynthia, thank you. Can I get you anything, Mr. Trainer? Coffee, tea, me? <laughs> Isn't she right? That'll be all, Cynthia. But how you look. I have a head for business and a bod for sin. Is there anything wrong with that? No. No. 20th Century Fox presents Harrison Ford. Last night was special. 
wasn't so special. I had to carry up three flights of stairs. Sigourney Weaver. This woman is my secretary. She's not. Oh, no? Ask her. Melanie Griffin. How about you? I'm flat broke. I'm crazy about a man that I will probably never see again. Well, besides that. <laughs> In a new film directed by Mike Nichols. I'm telling you, she's your man. Working girl. You know, maybe I just don't like you. Me? Working Girls, directed by Mike Nichols, written by Kevin Wade, and stars Melanie Griffith, Harrison Ford, Sigourney Weaver, Joan Cusack, Alec Baldwin, Nora Dunn, Oliver Platt, <coughs> Kevin Spacey, and Olympia Dukakis. If you have a keen eye, you can catch David Duchovny and Ricky Lake in the movie, and it's about when a secretary's idea is stolen from her boss, she seizes the opportunity to steal it back by pretending she has her boss's job. I mean, I, I love working girl so much there's like certain movies from the 80s that mm-hmm. I, I love so so much and this is number one and for a lot of the reasons i told you before that one it became relatable later right but initially it was just so inspiring to me as a, as a younger kid mm-hmm. to watch it and see her succeed and you know and then also as you get older you realize like how many other themes are at play in there and also even now you know, as we continue to go forward, it is, it's sort of unfortunate that it, it has to be two women almost pitted against each other. Right. Also super common for what was going on in the eighties is like, they were made to feel like there wasn't enough at the table for more than one woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense. Cause I, I feel like um, it had an anniversary in the last couple of years mm-hmm. and it must've been 2018. Yep. 32 years old. Or yeah. 33 years old this year. Yeah. I'm getting used to right. it. Yeah. There was, there was an oral history I remember reading that was like fascinating about how Alec Baldwin was originally supposed to be the Harrison Ford part, but then they got mm. Harrison Ford and they bumped Alec Baldwin to that part, which I honestly think is perfect. That's were, a good move. Yeah. Very good move. Because at, at 1988, Harrison Ford was the huge, huge star and Alec Baldwin was not there yet. And later on, yeah. Harrison Ford would bump him again as Jack Ryan in Hunt for Red October to Patriot games and stuff. So you have two Jack Ryans in one movie and she's got to choose. (laughs) He did such an excellent job as the shitty boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he, I I think all the time of the line reading when he says, who the fuck died and made you Grace Kelly? Like, yeah, it's funny. And it's, it's never not funny. And he's just so, he's so like convinced of his own righteousness in the Mm -hmm. moment. And, you know, and she's trying to, she's even still trying to be nice and being like, don't yell at me. He's just like, I got to get things solidified in my life. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> like, it's like such a specific kind of guy and he just yeah. nails it. Right. Um, and Harrison Ford, like it, his character is a little more interesting because it was not a typical kind of guy, especially a business guy. Right. Um, so, so I don't know. I just, I loved her, you know, getting everything, loved her getting the job that she wanted. I loved her getting a guy who respected her. I mean, she, passes out on him and he you know carries her to right well it's supposed to be kind of the mystery of like and, and there's so many funny lines in it and uh, sigourney weaver is outstanding right she's so so good and she's so perfect in that role and she's so you know and um you know as time goes on now too i like i feel sorry for her because 
her, I don't know, her character to me now, like, cause you know, in the beginning she's, just, you think of her as just the villain that she stole Tessa's idea. Right. She's not a good person. She, she doesn't even work that hard at her job. She's clearly comes from money. Her family's super rich and, and she doesn't care about screwing over a secretary because like to get ahead. Mm-hmm. And later on, watching it now and like thinking about the like, power dynamics and, and inter-office politics and all that kind of stuff. It's in my head too. Like she, she's not one note. She doesn't play it one note, No, but you know, that kind of person uh, probably still was like in real life, like that kind of person was definitely like scrambling to stay relevant and to prove that they deserve that job and that they could be a female boss surrounded by mostly dudes all the time. Right. Uh, I mean, because you, you sort of see that at her, the party that she has where Tess is passing out all the dumplings where all, like she's literally just flirting with all of them. Like she doesn't even know how to interact without being a flirt. Right. Well, she's also, I think she's kind of a product of that. And like she thinks that's how men are and she has to be like that. And yeah. and she treats her secretary as a man would like where he's like, oh, I'm cool with having women in power as long as they're below me at least one level. And that's how she treats Tess. And she kind of is like, well, if I have to bend this way, and you see she's weak around them because she has to play a game. And then Tess is to show you, no, be yourself, fight. And she's doing it another way. And I I think that's, you know, she's painted as a villain, but you can clearly see kind of what has made her the way she is a bit. Yeah, it's, uh, I love Mike Nichols. Obviously, as a younger kid watching it, I didn't even realize how prolific Mike Nichols is as a director. Oh, yeah. He's he did the graduate. He did Birdcage. He did he he has this like sense of the irreverent, but also knows what's important or uh, understands human relationships. I think is yeah for his work for having to be a man directing a woman's story. Mm-hmm. He's probably a good choice for yes, it. I think, indeed. and yes. I, I was looking around like so. This is written by a man, directed by a man, produced by men. Yeah. Like I was looking for, I'm like, who's the ghost writing secret woman that really informed this story to a degree? And there's, it's, la- it's none. I'm not docking it, but that's something we look no. at now going in. This was normal. It's like, yeah, that's a, because it has a female lead that, that counts. And nowadays you'd be like, mm. so I'm, I'm looking at it with today's eyes a little bit. I'm not, you know, it's a, it's a good movie. I like the movie. So. But I'm just kind of looking around like, where's the secret here that we're not seeing? Well, I guess but. It, was, it was later that he worked with Nora Ephron. So I was going to mm-hmm. say Nora Ephron influence could have been in there with him. But I think it was later because he did Heartburn. and well, he did Postcards from the, yeah, yeah, Carrie Fisher. Maybe Carrie Fisher, this is one of her ghostwriting. Because oh, no. she, she touched a lot of stuff when she was she back then. I love Heartburn that Mike Nichols did. I mean, I love the book more. But the movie's very good too. Like mm-hmm. the the book is an annual read for me. And thinking about his body of work too, Mike Nichols is totally the right person to have yeah. directed Heartburn as a movie. And this is a two film year for him. He also had Biloxi Blues come out earlier in the year. That yeah, this that's came Bruce out. Willis, right? Mm-hmm. Young Bruce Willis. Or it was, was it Broderick? I know the the poster, right? Yeah, I, I know the poster. It is Matthew Broderick. But it, but it kind of looks Bruce Willis-ish. Oh, it's a, it is Matthew. Oh my God, why am I thinking Bruce Willis? Oh my God. <laughs> there's a lot like yeah. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of covers from when I was a kid at the video store that I was like, oh Bruce Willis, like Harley Davidson, the Marble Man. No, that's Mickey Rourke. <laughs> Mickey oh, Rourke. You're just trying to make me feel better. No, no. I it's it. It happened. I think I think I, think I actually thought that was for a time too. 
when I was younger, but you no, know, it probably is. It's just the fact that we're used to Bruce Willis in an undershirt from Die yep. Hard, and so our brain sort of did the what's the the uh, the Shazam thing, right? The Shazam effect where we think oh, it's like the the movie with oh, Kazam, yeah, or, or some yeah. And uh, uh, right, because Shazam actually is a movie that exists. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, we think there's Kazam with like Sinbad. Sinbad, yeah, there's that one. And it does not. Right? Like, that's the thing. There was one with Shaq. Right. That I think that's like our minds like conflate those two movies somehow. Yeah. People call it the, yeah, the Kazam effect. But when like you don't quite remember things the right Mm -hmm. way. So that's what I'm going to call it for us. Like, we thought it was Bruce Willis because the undershirt. Yes. <laughs> no, he he owns that. That's his. <laughs> that's his thing. Yeah, yeah. Two films, and this is Kevin Wade who wrote his first one, and he go on to write True Colors, Mr. Baseball Junior, Meet Joe Black, and Made in Manhattan, wow. as well as Blue Bloods on CBS. Yeah. I I'm of the minority who really likes Meet Joe Black. <laughs> Do you remember the internet used to have the car hit scene as like an actual like death video? People used to. People were tweeting it like last year and being like, this is an actual scene from a movie. And I'm like, don't you mock my movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's another one I need to return to. You got to be returned to re- working girl for the first yeah. time in a long time. I haven't seen yeah, Joe Black I mean, probably since it came out. I mean, and that, that scene is ridiculous with Brad Pitt. Like, but that's mm-hmm. sort of why part of the reason why I love that movie, that movie is like way too long, has like too much shit happening in it. Like Brad Pitt has, attempts to do some weird Jamaican accent and mm-hmm. all, like it's just it's so there's so many things that you could say is wrong with that movie yeah also, I just love it so much you're allowed to it hurt nobody <laughs> movie um so we, uh, another funny thing so it's like the movie starts working girl starring Harrison Ford <laughs> top billing I know that's an agent business decision they I mean People's pay scale, but it's kind of funny. This is Melanie Griffith's movie with Harrison Ford Gosh, on the title. Who's Joan Cusack, man? <laughs> Joan Cusack, yeah, like she, and she's this, 80s royalty. She is, she is totally. And this was a big one for her too. There's a lot of Oscar nominations going around for this yes. movie. But that's another thing about the movie is I, I love their friendship, and mm-hmm. I always used to get upset at the scene where they have that argument in the office and she's like, you're going to be out of your home. You're out of your home and your man already. And you're going to yeah. be out of the job. And it's a, it's a scene that I love more and more as I get older mm-hmm. because I, to me now it sort of signifies that she, she doesn't, she loves Tess, but she doesn't quite get it because like, she doesn't want the things that Tess wants. She doesn't need them. She doesn't want Tess to grow beyond her. I think as part of her, I well, think she's got like kind of, in an opposite way, like Alec Baldwin's thing. Like, I wonder how much, like, was Alec Baldwin led on by her to think that Tess maybe wanted to come back? Because she seems to, because they seem to be in on the proposal thing at their engagement right. party. And, and I'm also, like, is, yeah. Yeah. And, she, you know, she says he kept me there talking till five in the morning because she yeah. had her suitcase full of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's very easy, I think, when there's a group of friends and, Mm-hmm. Certain people within that group have been dating for a very long time that you, you want harmony and you, you want, you know, things. And so for her, the easiest thing is to be like, Hey, like you can forgive him and we can go back to, you know, what we do, which is, you know, like dollar beers on Friday night at the right, yeah. Staten Island. And then you're going to marry him and, I, and I'm marrying this guy and we're all friends and we're all like, and have kids together, whatever. And 
I think a great thing about her character, she has this back and forth thing where she helps tests, but then sort of is like, what are you doing? And then helps her. And then is like, what are you doing? And that, I think that too makes sense too, because also that I'm sure a lot of women thought it was, well, it's like, I'm lucky enough just to have a job. So why am I going to try and rock the boat here and like strive for something bigger than what I have. And that's why her whole, speech to her where she's like I'm I want bigger than this like I and I deserve better than this and Joan Cusack's character is very much like but like almost like she doesn't say it but like everything about what she says to her essentially says but why like why do you need that like Mm -hmm. she's that it's a phase parent kind of you know or you're you're like to her she's sabotaging herself which you know technically she does end up doing but yeah not on purpose, but because, you know, Catherine's very vindictive when she right. exactly what's going on. You know, she is like, she, she is like playing with fire because she's pretending, she's pretending to be her boss. She is pretending she has that office on uh, numerous occasions. It's, it's a very, you know, dicey game, but also she's right. She couldn't get to where she wanted to be without doing that. Hmm. Otherwise she's just toiling away. Like everyone, all those other women in the office who are just, there to punch in and punch out at the end of the day no definitely yeah it's it's a difference and it's just a different time too this was sort of into the first decade of the woman returning or going to the workplace like Mm -hmm. it was where the power suit started coming up up, Mm -hmm. about and it's a different era that you kind of have yes Mm -hmm. shoulder pads and uh you you have to like kind of go back to like you have to understand where this movie's coming from and where it's a bit time capsule but I think there's a lot of, sadly, stuff that still remains true and it's an understandable story, but it was like a, a challenge to even get back and have that assistant secretary type position at that time. And it's a weird dichotomy of, no, don't go back or stay at the... It was a... Yeah. Not that I was a, an adult during it and understood it, but I've read back, I've seen movies, I've, you know, I've kind of... Yeah seeing how things are and this is the the movie to show showcase that and i think it is a definitely one of the like staple movies of the 80s that you should check out because it's not only a, one of the, it's an oscar nominated best picture film but it like showcases styles and stuff it's a nice time capsule that mm-hmm. isn't super dated it it's yeah. the 80s it's going to look like look like yeah. that although like her hair at the beginning i'm just like <sighs> the eyeshadow like is that a wig the socks and the sneakers oh. and then the heel. Yeah. It just, like Joan Cusack's hair was, that was, that was some good eighties hair, but hers was like a super mullet. Yeah. What's going on. That's, once that, once she cut it and had the nice short do, I was yeah. like, yes. Okay. Cool. That's Melanie Griffith right there. Yeah. There's some nice interesting, like the, the opening is this boat or ferry, whatever, taking them. And it's, it's, it's almost like an immigration moment in cinema that the way they present it, like here come the women, Back to recl- like you know it's like coming to a new world. It's it's interesting how he presents that with the also Carly Simon. The one Oscar win they got was Carly Simon's song, who she does the that's soundtrack. Good. Honestly, that song starts playing and like my heart stops, and I'm like, I have to drop everything and watch this movie. Like it's such yeah. a perfect song. I got her halfway to EGOT status with this one song because she got I, a I Grammy also, and yeah. A thing I I liked about it too is because. You know, they weren't these hip, successful women living in Manhattan, you know, mm-hmm. going to work every day. They were these lower class women who lived on Staten Island taking the ferry in every day. And I guess as someone who's from Jersey who has, has done the commute into New York on many occasions, like to try to, you know, schlep and, and get a better job, 
it feels very familiar. Like, oh, I don't, like, don't have the money to like be where I want to be just yet. So I just, you know, I have to, this is my daily commute, like every day, like back and forth, back and forth until I can get to another level. Definitely. I don't have that experience. I was, <laughs> my, <laughs> big, uh, yeah, for me, it was, it was West Coast stuff, but um, it's terrible public transportation. <laughs> There's a lot of yeah different. They were talking about. Um, it's going through my notes here. I have no. It's chaos. But uh, we talked about Alec Baldwin on him, and I love his buying her a gift. Seeing there was a real weird cut there, there like a weird fades, there. and I'm like, what? Yeah. like did they edit this? I thing? I feel like they they usually it because she says the just for once I could go for a sweater, or some earrings, or something. Somebody could wear outside of the bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. And it usually goes back to him, right? In the bed or something. And then, but instead now it goes right to the next black. scene. It was like yes. black and then yes. next scene. Like, I noticed that. I just watched it because I just watched it recently too. And I was like, something, something's missing here. But I, but I can't quite remember exactly what it is, but I know that's not what happens. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe something got edited. I don't know. Ah, um, but I don't, weird... I remember a sort of more fluid transition to the next scene mm-hmm. but i don't know but yeah that's it's such a funny scene because also it's like the ugliest lingerie <laughs> like it's right really it bad. is and then it comes full circle at the engagement party when he buys it for the couple for junkie second <laughs> i was like ah, that guy okay that fun for the whole family and you're like yeah like that's your boyfriend you know and i think something my mom always said to me when we used to watch it together when i was younger she'd be like i love alec baldwin like i love uh, Harrison Ford, like, you know, I guess probably first, I probably first watched it more like the early 90s. I, mm-hmm. That's probably the age I was. And when it was always the, I think it was the party scene when they're dancing to Lady in Red. My mom said, I, she, it's so funny because like she said like the same thing like every time, like in certain movies, like as if she hasn't said it 9,000 times before. And she would turn to me and be like, the problem is she's outgrown him. It's mm. not a, you know, there. Sometimes you outgrow people, and it doesn't necessarily mean someone's a bad person. But you outgrow them, and then you can stay because you're used to it or you're comfortable. But you know that you've outgrown them, and and that's why relationships end. And I remember like always thinking about that, watching that scene, like for years going on. And I mean, granted, yes, they. It's because it's a movie. They made it a little bit easier. Like he slept with someone else, so it's much easier for her to break the ties. But I think that she's right. I think that's the overall sentiment is like more and more she's realizing that she's she's gone beyond their relationship. Like he he wants a certain kind of person. He wants Doreen DeMucci who's mm-hmm. going to be less than him and work for him and, you know, like not strive for these things that he doesn't understand. Like, I mean, he sees her new briefcase and outfit and he's like, would you have traffic court today? Like, you know, <laughs> understand (laughs) you know it's like those small little things with the dialogue but also the inflection that he gives to it Mm -hmm. really shows like he's a guy he's just this regular staten island guy who wants to get married and and you know be with someone who's around right you know that's what it is and like he clearly also is the kind of guy like well like he probably stopped sleeping with doreen like once him and tess got married because then it's like for real for real yeah you know, that's the that's that's the sense you get from him the whole movie is like, oh, I'm just like, you know, it's not serious now. It doesn't really mean anything. Like, um, but you know, I'm just waiting for you to, to marry me so I can stop being an asshole. 
Yeah. No, yeah, it's it's interesting, but like the the sleeping with helps to like step back and take a perspective around her that she never probably focused right. on as much before and made excuses. Yeah. But yeah, she's she's terrific in this movie. Like I think she always looks like she's about to cry too. Yeah. It's where her eyes are really glassy and watery looking, but I like these little like little touches that she would do like when she got her hair cut and went to the event, she was like still playing with it cuz you know what you get if you have yeah. like longer hair or something and lose it, you're constantly messing with it and i was like that's pretty well thought out because they probably shot those way apart totally and another thing that i love about that scene when she walks into the party is um because when i was younger and and first going to my first business conference and and meetings that type of thing there are more than a few times that i walked in way overdressed for what it was Mm. being like oh this is embarrassing (laughs) like everyone's much more casual here oh yeah and sort of trying to like kind of hang out on the fringe of the event so that it wasn't obvious that I'm wearing a pink poofy skirt while everyone else is in these, you know, very uh, dark gray, olive green, navy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God. I did like also in that scene where she shows up, there's a nice little touch when her and Harrison Ford are at the bar and he says two tequilas. And he's like doubles. And then when they do the power to the people and she goes, the little and they both have a whispering <laughs> moment of what they really are trying to express out of themselves in that. And they both yeah. whisper it under their breath. And I thought that was pretty, pretty cute. I and love it. Yeah. That, that whole scene is great. And he's like, but how you look, it's just like, why do I look like I don't belong here? And he's like, no, no. Like, and I, I love how dazzled he is by her. Mm-hmm. Because she's at such a low point right before that, that all of a sudden she, you know, she puts her plan in motion and she goes to this party and this like the first thing that happens is like Harrison Ford of all people like, you know, comes over to her and it's like, wow, look at you. Yeah, definitely. And did you notice like, like, like I noticed what he did. There's a way they tell you that she has fully formed from what she was into being the person in power. Did you, did you catch what they did at all? In that scene? Not in that scene, in the, in the movie in general. I'm sorry. Like, so I noticed this, maybe I'm reaching. Maybe no, I'm no, reaching. No, no, no. When we open the movie, yeah. she's to inform her shitty boss in the, the bathroom who's in the stall yeah. of stuff. And she has to go in the men's room uncomfortably. And so uh, later in the film, they go to that wedding. She goes in the women's room. He sneaks in and is in the women's room in the stall. And then from then on, she is the one in power and has him more latching on and like oh and he becomes like the servant and she is in power the rest of the way like it was two bathroom scenes and i was like wait and i rewound it back i'm like hold on because he then gives her the information to get her out you know what she has to do when she gets out of there or to get out of there and she did that or she did that at the beginning to her boss and now she has fully become the one in charge with that scene i actually never thought about that i was like there is a bathroom parallel. There's a bathroom yeah. parallel. And it's showing her like coming into power. And from that moment on, she can, she's in control of the whole movie. And that's when she talks right after that. She talks to the guy, gets the meeting, and it goes from there. But yeah, yeah it was. Because whenever I watch it, I always just think about like how awkward it is. Like he goes in there to use the bathroom, and then the bride comes in, and, and like in my head, he's in the stall going, oh shit. Like, <laughs> what do I and- do? He flushes a toilet, come out, comes out, doesn't wash his hands, and goes back to the. <laughs> goes back. 
But he also could be buzzed too. He chugged, he sucked down the one drink and didn't have it when he went back to the bathroom. So, and those were hurricanes. Yeah, but yeah, that's when he becomes yeah more observant. I was, I was like, I was proud of myself. Like, wait, I think, I think that's a that's a thing there. Maybe I don't know. I didn't see anybody else. Maybe I should write a working girl article, point that out, so I could put it out in the universe. I don't know. But yeah, I, I really like that. Um, but also another full circle thing was like she learns who she is with snooping and like kind of snooping she's supposed to be checking that stuff and then she gets taken out by the same kind of snooping like it's when her boss does it but it's interesting like that whole thing and i was i was hoping you know you're hoping sigourney weaver's like just come on come on play together and just no yeah she gets drawn out like yeah it's so like it's so funny when her and and joan cusack go to Catherine's apartment you know, they see the chandelier like coming. It's such a great shot of the chandelier mm-hmm. like, coming down. She's like, "Why does it do that?" Uh, <laughs> and, like, I think it's for cleaning. Right. It's, it's so funny because that's that's totally how you would feel in a rich mm-hmm. person's place for the first time if you've never seen anything like that. They're just so, you know. Of course, you would ride her exercise bike and, and vacuum topless. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, that was interesting. Yeah. But man, what a huge, huge apartment that was! <laughs> Gigantic, yeah. And it's a really the the scene of her when she enters herself just kind of out of left. It's the first time we have the perspective not from Melanie Griffith's angle, from yeah. Tess's angle, and it's just kind of like, oh, okay, that all right. <laughs> it's like, but it is a funny movie. It's a yeah. I don't know dramedy. Yeah, I really like this movie. I I watched it on Showtime's app. But I want I want the Blu-ray, which is now it's out of print, and going for like eighty bucks. So I'm gonna have to I have to import it from Japan for twenty. So that's better. But yeah, that's cool. But I was like, yeah, I want to grab this movie. The Academy Award nominations: Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress for Weaver and Joan Cusack, Best Original Song. That's what won, and then Weaver and Griffith both won Golden Globes for it. It is a stacked movie, and it was I, I can't I should have wrote down, but it was a stacked year at the Academy Awards. I was like, I was like, okay, all right, yeah. a lot of yeah. lot of competition. It's so it is. It's one of those things where uh, when you look back at not just that year, lots of years, where you're like, I wonder why like this movie didn't win or this person didn't win, and then you look <laughs> up what else was happening that year, and you're like, oh, okay. Oh, I think Gina Davis got it that year, yeah. and I was like, I wouldn't want to take one from Gina Davis, no. But yeah, it was interesting. It's interesting. Like Harrison Ford wasn't nominated at all. I was like, oh, all right. Like he's only been nominated one time ever for Academy Award for Witness. That's it. I was going to say, was it Witness or I mm-hmm. remember it was Witness or The Fugitive? Yeah, it was Witness. Tommy Lee Jones was the the fugitive, fugitive. and he won. So he did. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, Witness, that'd be a good one to talk about in this show. I did a commentary for it a couple of years ago. I can talk about it again. It's an iconic scene where he says, I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. I don't care. Yep. Award. Yeah. Was that the one they used in the Oscar clip thing? I so. I mean, oh, gosh. Like, I don't care. I don't care. Oh, gosh. Oh, it's so funny. What else? This is where we just talk about something maybe we've recently taken in. Books, movies, music, or maybe something we've recently published shot something so daniel what else 
lately I've been rewatching a lot of things. Like right now I'm deep into a Veep rewatch. So partially for the spelling bee, but also it's just so good. And it's just so satisfying. But in terms of new stuff, I'm a huge fan of Cobra Kai. Okay. Gotcha. I have not checked it out yet. It's like... I get stacks of stuff. So it it nails like the eighties nostalgia thing Mm -hmm. for me, uh, which I know like some people like don't like nostalgia or don't like relying on nostalgia as, as you know, or feel it's a prop in, you know, in shows or sequels or whatever. And thing is when it first came out, someone had told me about it and I'm like, Oh, it sounds interesting. Like I would want to check it out. I love the karate kid movies as a kid. Mm -hmm. It seemed like the person who told me about it didn't give me a lot of information. They're like, it's best if you just watch it, which I was glad that they didn't fully go into it because I think if I had heard it was from Johnny Lawrence's perspective, I would have been like, why? No, (laughs) what? But I think it's really well done. I think it's really funny, smart and interesting. I think the kids are great. Like the, the kid who plays Miguel, He's so fantastic. He's such a good actor. And I honestly, I hope he completely blows up from this and starts booking all kinds of movies and other things because he's so terrific on screen and he has, he's, he's good at the the drama because I mean, it's a comedy show, but he has these moments of drama and also mm-hmm. he just has excellent comic timing. It's, I don't know, it's really great to, to see a really fun ensemble cast do a show where it sort of it brings together the, the, the cast members from 30 odd years ago with this fresh group of, of young kids who probably just learned about those movies in the past couple of years. Right, yeah. I, t- I took my kids to a drive-in to see a reshowing of Karate Kid this summer, the past yeah, summer. Like, so They probably booked this job and were like, I better go watch those movies and find out, you know, what the backstory is. What the right. Is. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's that's been really fun. And I have a lot of friends who watch it too, so it's been a really fun thing to to text about in the group chat. And I love Karate Kid. I'm sad that Mr. Miyagi is not with us anymore because right. he would have been a cool addition. But having clips from the movies to use is like the best that you know they mm-hmm. can do i'm trying to think of anyone else oh actually another person from the original movies also passed away re- uh but recently and he was in season two uh but yeah it would have been cool for mr miyagi to be alive to see this but definitely what are you gonna do? yeah so we can get a time machine or raise the dead um <laughs> yeah that's true myself i've uh i've taken in uh, some of my uh, stacking Blu-rays to get to, but uh, a, a weird movie. Uh, I'll talk about this one uh, from Vinegar Syndrome. They do their little Black Friday sale where they put titles. They have mystery titles, and you don't know what they are till Black Friday. And then everybody, there was a limited copies. Everybody goes nuts. Websites crash. It was smooth this year. One of them was called Don't Panic, and it's this 1980s possessed slasher movie. And it's really goofy, but it's like super 80s. Like it doesn't care that it's going to be, you know, dated next week. And it's just really weird and fun. This kid, like people get possessed and then the kid can't see anything and it kills people. It's strange. The the hot girl in it has a unibrow that's like really bad. And I was like, oh, she, yeah, she just looks like something... One of the the it's always sunny people the the weird family she fit in oh, with them yeah. almost yeah and but the thing in in this is this kid he's like a eighteen 
or no, he's like 16 something. He wears these like kids pajamas in it, like little yeah. kids and they got dinosaur on it mm-hmm. and like the white with like the red sleeves. I want a pair. Like I will wear the hell. If someone puts it out, I will wear the pair. It's going in my movie clothing. I want to wear in public stuff <laughs> with Jesse from Nightmare on Elm Street to his hat that he wears when he's cleaning his room. Uh, there's a Space 1999 jacket from an episode that I want. So, folks, if you're listening and you can find me these things, I want to wear <laughs> them in public. Uh, but, yeah, don't panic. It's crazy. I think it comes out to order from regular retailers this month. might be out already, but I think it came out in the January. As we Please speak. document it if you do wear it. I, oh, I will. I will. You will. My Twitter feed will be all pictures of me doing different things with that. I will. I will recreate Jesse. If I can get the hat... I will recreate Jesse's cleaning room scene from Nightmare on Elm Street 2. No shame. <laughs> and then I will also wear the Don't Panic pajamas maybe while I do it. Um, <laughs> nice. But I want that stuff. So, I mean, I wear a Doctor Who ja- cosplay jacket as a real jacket. So, I'm, folks, oh, I'm wow. not afraid. I get compliments on it all the time. It's yeah. Tom Baker's from the 1970s. It's this corduroy like a jacket. And people are like, man, that's cool. nice. Whereas I'm like... Like, like, where'd you get that? Where'd you, I'm like, you don't, you, you don't want to, it's going to really demystify everything when I tell you what it is. But so I'm not afraid to wear pajamas in public. I'll go to work in those jam- pajamas. So, but that's, that's what I've taken in. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me, Danielle. It's been a joy and a fun and a pleasure meeting you and talking working girl. Let people know where they can keep up with you and your work. Okay. Well, first, thank you for having me and thank you for letting me rock my new leopard robe in this podcast. My Twitter handle is uh, at LSEP, E-L-L-E-S-E-P, which is probably the best place to find me. That's where I post my nonsensical thoughts and my website's up there, which is daniellesup.com. You can follow me on Instagram, which is at daniellesup, but really just post pictures of my dog. So if you're into that, all, all for it. Um, otherwise I'm not that interesting on Instagram, but Twitter, I'm very interesting. I promise you. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. And yeah, and the, if you go to my website, daniellesup.com, you can also email me through there if you so desire to, after listening to this chat and want to know more about what I do or want to hire me, which would also be nice. Do it. Hire her <laughs> for stuff. All right, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD, the written work on whysoblue.com. There's more from the Brandon Peters Show this week, but until then, always remember to keep the positivity in your online film chatter. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.
these things are usually so boring. <laughs> I wouldn't know. Power to the people. The little people.